The following audio is via a Skype call. And the next morning, when he woke up, he rolled over and realized, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> she was his cousin. It's Manson Mitchell on the weekend with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to power up your day. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. Happy weekend to you. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together, we are Mance and Mitchell in your ears for the hour in a ghostly fashion today. This is going to be a lot of fun. But first, let's say hello to tall guy Nathan at the board. Nathan, how are you today? Hey, good morning, Gary and Suzanne. And... Go Rays! Hey, there you go. <laughs> Getting the nod, Suzanne Thank and I, you. of course, Thank residing you. in uh, on the Gulf side of Florida in Sarasota. About an hour uh, south of Tampa Bay. We have been to that place. I, you've been there at least once, haven't you? See a Rays yes, game? Yes, I have. Yeah, I've gone a few times, and uh, it's interesting. It's a, it's a nice stadium. It looks like a bandbox. And they keep talking about getting a brand new stadium. They talk and talk and talk and talk, but that hasn't happened yet. There's still a lease, and the city is holding the Rays to it. And uh, who knows? It may be uh, the second time that the Rays have been in the World Series. It's not even being played in Tampa Bay. None of the games because of circumstances being what they are. And the Rays might indeed win it. Or it could be the L.A. Dodgers winning their first World Series since 1988. Either way. Nathan, where are we in the series? Currently, it's Tampa uh Dodgers two to one in the series, so they're chugging along right now. But All if right. the Rays can keep fighting and prevent the Dodgers from getting on the hill, winning three games in a series, I think they got a pretty good shot at winning. But it's up okay. to them now. I mean, they can't let the Dodgers win one more game. I don't think. All right. So you think it'll go seven? I think it might. It all depends it on this seven. game, though. If okay. it uh, went, if the Rays win today. I think they have a much greater chance of having a game seven than if the Dodgers win today. Okay. There you go. Good analysis. Very good, Nathan. Thank you. That's ESPN Nathan right there. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) We are here today privileged to have a first-time guest. We love our first-time guests. And I can't wait to talk to him because he has carved out a niche for himself and one that I envy because of the nature of the subject matter and the way that he chronicles it with style, but also methodical research. The name of the book we're going to focus on today, and there are others by this gentleman, his name is Matthew L. Swain. And today's book, because we're in the spirit of Halloween a week early, Haunted Rails, Tales of Ghost Trains, Phantom Conductors, and Other Railroad Spirits. Good times ahead. Matthew L. Swain is a journalist who works as a research writer at Penn State. He's the author of Haunted World War II and several other books on the paranormal, and he lives in State College, Pennsylvania. We'll be sure to give out all of his contact information before the end of the hour, but welcome for the first time to Manson Mitchell, Matt Swain. Hey, everyone. Thank you very much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Uh, We appreciate your book, read it from cover to cover, great haunted stories. It was hard to pick out the ones we wanted to talk to about today, but we figured a week before Halloween, we'd start getting everybody 
prepped. Oh yeah, prime that pump. I mean, the, the candy's been out since what August? Yes, yeah, it's right. a stale. <laughs> Usually, around I don't know about where you live, Matt, but we love to hand out candy to the kitties, and we wind up giving out about ten percent of the supply, and we don't get that many in our neighborhood, and so we wind up consuming it afterward ourselves. Our dentists love us. Yeah, that's uh, so. I don't know whether. You all know this, but um, I was born on Halloween, which is oh, kind really? of, yeah, yeah. So I was, uh, you know, a Halloween baby and a reporter at a daily newspaper uh, in my hometown of Tyrone, Pennsylvania. So you take a, as a writer and as someone born on Halloween, it was sort of destiny that I would end up um, uh, writing about this. But around here, much to my wife's ch chagrin, uh, from October 1st to October 31st is called the season of Matt. And so ah, uh, like just that. just recently, I had to get my wife to go out and get little bags uh, for our treats. We're going to do it a little pandemic style this year, and we're going to put our treats in little bags and put them out uh, uh, in, in, in the driveway so there's not a lot of contact. Oh, that's very smart. Nice. Excellent. Very and yet nice. you can still be in the spirit, as it were, of the season. Yeah. I also love it that uh, just as uh, on Seinfeld, there was the summer of George. Every year you have the season of Matt. <laughs> that's yeah. exactly where I stole it from. Really? Now, yeah. Matt, I have to ask you, do you dress up? Uh, not usually. I feel like people are dressing up for me, so I don't really have to do that. Okay. But. You know, that may change. All right. That's, that's, a, that's a great answer. We do it only occasionally ourselves. Do we dress up? But Suzanne will put on a little something. I'm just the guy at the door handing out candy so the kids don't seem to mind that. There just aren't that many of them. There, yeah. I think our high water mark here was what's that, like six or seven. Yeah. And we've yeah. had one. We've had two. One year we had none. There, boy, did we load up on candy that year? We, we yeah, I bet. We used to put out a skull and bones flag outside, which kind of attracted the kids. And oh, yeah. one year I just didn't bother with it. And the doorbell rang and this kid says, hey, lady, where's your flag? <laughs> I thought he remembered us from the pirate flag. I love that. Oh, that's great. Well, I am so jealous of you, Matt, because, yes, you have a season of Matt. First of all, that's enough to make me jealous right there. You've got a whole season. But also, right. the subject matter that you delve into, you obviously, are, you're a methodical researcher. You're very precise with your reporting. And as a chronicler of these stories, you speak to the little kid in me. And I'll tell you why. Uh, just the, And it's really just an outline of a story because I don't remember too many of the details save one. When I was a little parochial school kid, and I'm going to say I was in maybe fourth or fifth grade, I got bored with studying geography, didn't care too much for the arithmetic and catechism. I got an A in because I wanted to keep my parents and the priest happy. So <laughs> once that was taken care of, I figured I want to read about things that interest me. And the paranormal, as we know it today, the spooky stuff back then was wonderful. Ghost stories, stories of reincarnation, and certainly flying saucers as we knew them back then. Those were the big three. And one day in particular, I got a book from the school library. They actually had this uh, that you could just uh, take back to your room and read. So I'm reading these ghost stories of America, and one of them had to do with a spectral train conductor. 
he would be seen in outline form, but the main thing that caught people's attention during these nocturnal sightings was the luminous lantern that he carried with him walking parallel to the tracks where apparently he used to be a conductor and this luminous green glow would swing like he's walking and swinging the lantern. And I'm telling you, that got into my DNA that very day. I thought if something like that can be real, what are the possibilities in life? And it speaks to a life beyond life. And even in with my immature little mind there in parochial school, I just remember thinking there's much more to know about the nature of life than I've been taught in catechism. So that's a that's really interesting because actually that very closely mimics the kind of ideation process that I went through to create this book because the the nut of this book, the real center of this book is based on uh, being a kid and living in Tyrone, Pennsylvania, which is close to Altoona, Pennsylvania, one of the big railroad hubs of Pennsylvania, if not the nation. And you, when I was a kid, there were several ghost stories that centered around the um, the railroad outside of where I lived. In fact, there was this one kind of famous one of a uh, worker in some of the stories, he was a worker. In other stories, he was just this uh, drunk guy stumbling down the railroad tracks, and he was decapitated. And since then, you know, that area has reportedly been haunted by this headless conductor, in some cases, railroad worker and others. And so when I remembered that story and some of the others, what I usually start is with uh, area of history that I'm interested in, and then try to find the paranormal stories. And I invariably find ghost stories wrapped around the kind of history that I like. Um, so I, I explored it more. And so that story of the spectral conductor uh, literally appears all over the country. Uh, stories of, of orbs of light that um, seem to float around these uh, railroad tracks and, and different uh, railroad objects is another uh, myth theme of, of Haunted Rail. I love the way you put the book together because not every story is going to involve spectacular celebrities or presidents of the United States, though some do, I'm happy to say. It's part of the charm of Haunted Rails but also the little out-of-the-way places and the stories that carry on from generation to generation. If you're going to chronicle ghost stories, it seems to me that's the best way to do it. Yeah, absolutely. So um, as a journalist, what I really try to do is go out and find substantial sources for these ghost stories. Uh, and then I try to write myself and my own kind of opinion out of the story and just try to tell the different sides of it. And what you do find is that there seem to be two camps here. There, there seem to be, uh, and I've seen this in, in all the other books that I've written about, about this, is that there's, on one side, there is what I would consider uh, the folktale aspects of, of these stories, which they are legends uh, and based on spirits and ghosts of these places. The other, I would consider them more of paranormal encounters or ghost 
accounts of ghosts. Uh, and I try to use both of them because I think both of them are extremely important. Um, when we talk about these ghost legends, as you talk about that, they're multi-generational. They're told time and time again, over and over again, and you'll find different variations, different characters. And, and I find that just as a person who's interested in history and interested in folklore as something that needs to be investigated. So I like to surface a, a lot of that. But then I think if you dive into that even deeper, you'll see that there are reasons why these stories have lasted so long. For me, um, diving into some of these ghost stories about uh conductors who've uh, died in accidents, engineers who perished in in, in uh, horrible accidents, passengers who died in, in wrecks and things like that remind me of when I used to sneak into my uh, grandfather's books and I would pull out one of his, uh, he was a railroad engineer, he would have a, a union magazine. And throughout the magazine, you would find that there were uh, ads for uh, prosthetics for arms and legs because railroading was just such a dangerous, hard business. And I think some of those stories are telling us about just how dangerous it is. And then I think on, on other ways that the way the railroad has affected um, communities. I mean, some of these communities, um, mine in particular, were built around railroads. So you also get a sense of how important these people were. And then finally, the railroad changed the way that we looked at time and space uh, as, as a nation. The nation was huge, and it took weeks to cross. And if you, you know, were in Tyrone, Pennsylvania, and left to go to Seattle, then you probably never saw your relatives again, but the railroad changed that. And so there's almost a magic or mystique that builds up around these. So uh, I like to tell stories uh, and I like to tell legends and I like to kind of wrap them in together. Uh, as a journalist, I found that if you're impartial and unbiased, then everybody hates you. And so sometimes I get criticized for these books because I don't seem to take a stance. But I, I really believe that both sides of these stories are extremely important. You know, uh, Matt, that was one of the things that I noted in reading your books is that you don't choose a side and say, I'm sure this is the way that it happened. As a researcher, you say, you know, some people say this, some people say that. And you kind of just lay it all out and allow the reader to decide for themselves. And one story in particular, which I hope we'll get to in the second half, had to do with three different possibilities for one encounter, one experience. And they're all things that we've heard of before. And, you know, could it be this? Could it be that? Could it be the third thing? And, uh, and, and I found that very, very fascinating. I'd like to I'd like to get to a story and, and let our listeners know the kinds of things that you write about. And the one that, of course, Gary said, tell tell the Lincoln story, tell the Lincoln story. That's the first story in the book. And it is a great story. And so I thought maybe you could give a little summary about the Lincoln story, the Lincoln train as it as it happens. Sure. Well, to back this up, you have to kind of 
go the whole way back to the inauguration of Abraham Lincoln before the Civil War. And uh, when he was traveling from from Illinois to Washington, D.C., he took this circuitous uh, trip via rail to Washington, D.C. And really what he was doing is it was almost a uh, an inauguration trip where he left from Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, into New York, down through Pennsylvania and Maryland into Washington, D.C. Along the route, he met with people and voters and people got to go and see the, the train. It was it was, a, you know, a largely a symbolic trip for him and, and uh, for for the nation. Uh, at the end of the Civil War, some of the union leaders and some of the uh, governmental leaders thought it would be a good thing to have because they sensed that the Confederacy was in its last days. They thought it would be a good idea to have a victory trip after the um, Civil War, after the you know peace was was officially declared. And in this case, they would kind of do the same route in reverse. Uh, and the one thing that struck me was that Abraham Lincoln really did not want to talk about this. They built a, a train especially for this. I think it was called the Nashville, and he didn't go see it. Uh, he was scheduled to see it, but of course, uh, the night before, he was assassinated. And so this ce- celebratory uh, train uh, excursion turned into the funeral train of Abraham Lincoln. And it it went on the same train, the same trail that it was supposed to go. Uh, However, it was not, you know, a celebration at all, and it was mournful. And I, uh, I think the train went through about 400 communities uh, along that long, long circuitous uh, journey back to uh, Springfield, Illinois. Now, every since then, uh, there have been stories, and this legend has grown that if you are along one of those trails where that train went through and a lot of those rails have been you know uh ripped up and they're no longer around uh but if you're there on april 19th allegedly you'll be able to see this ghost train and they talk about how if you're on near the path of of where this train was that the sky will darken if if the moon's out clouds will cover it'll become very very dark and then you'll hear this sizzling of 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 steam and you'll hear the kind of screech of the steel wheel wheels and it'll get louder and louder and then the train will come in into view and you can tell it's it's not like any train that's on the the tracks today it's a steam engine and some descriptions are that there are flames coming out through the smokestack. And as the train passes, you see that there is a uh, coffin laid out in the, in the main car and surrounding it. In some stories, there are ghosts of Union soldiers. In other stories, there are uh, skeletons. And it will finally fade away, pass you, go into the night. And then the, the night you know, gets brighter, the, the moon comes back out again. Uh, so that story has been uh, passed on literally for more than 100 years. Now, in, in your book, you say one of the observers to this was a man who got stopped at a railroad crossing near a depot, and he was watching this train go by 
and noting some of the things that you're talking about. But there were two men at the depot. They were they were working there. And so he said, I'm going to, I don't know if I believe what I just saw, but I'm going to ask those two men if I saw what I think I saw. And, and what happened when he went to talk to them? Well, if I can back that up a little bit, uh, he actually mentions that uh, time basically stood still uh, before he saw those men, and they, they seemed to have frozen. Um, and, and then he goes to, to talk to them. And they did not, I think if I recall the story correctly, they did not see what he saw. Right. Uh, and so, uh, and again, that story comes from a blog post and, uh, you know, it's hard to say whether this was, this was a person who actually experienced this, but what happens you'll find is that people start to add their own little twists and their own little derivations to the story as it progresses. Each story becomes a little different. Uh, I read a few accounts in, in various books where they never mentioned this idea of time standing still, still. But if you think about it, how evocative that is, that if you could make time stand still, could you, you know, go back to that moment uh, before the assassination? And if only you could have stopped time at that. And I think this idea of history and the ability and the intersection of time into history kind of came out in that post. And you notice how delicately, Suzanne, that Matt avoided using the word embellishment. <laughs> Derivation, yes, I know what you mean. There, people tend to embellish, and time stopped. And my watch was eight minutes off. Right. There, it, you know, that's part of the fun of ghost stories. But it's also the challenge for someone like yourself because you are a chronicler of the lore, the legend, these stories. If there is a, even a grain of truth in them, which probably just comes down to corroboration among however many people, it's great that you include that. But the embellishment is always going to be there. I don't care if you're talking about railroad ghosts, haunted houses, or UFOs and lights in the sky, you're going to have people who are pretty diligent about what they saw and they want to be taken seriously while other people enjoy expanding the tale as it were. Yeah, and, and they're, they're, so when I first started to write about these, I, I had an original model where uh, you have one story and then like that game of telephone, everyone who tells that story uh, tells the story a little differently. But it, there's also times where I think what is happening is is if people do have encounters with the unexplained, something they can't really fathom, uh, they'll tell a story and then someone who had a similar encounter will incorporate some of their observations too. So there's a lot of different ways that these stories get shaped over the years. And yeah, as you you point out, it becomes very difficult to kind of tease it apart. Um, normally, I will I don't use stories um, that I don't try to use personal accounts from anonymous sources and blogs and things like that. Uh, I kind of revoked those those criteria for this one because 
it was so hard to find anyone. Um, normally what I, what I would do in a case like this is I would reach out to ghost hunters in those areas or paranormal researchers, and they can kind of be, you know, boots on the ground to try to find stories like that. But I could not find anything like that with, uh, this, this legend, which surprises me because the legend is, is, you know, almost probably a century old. And yet there doesn't seem to be these teams going out to find and locate this. So in that case, it tells me something a little different about these stories. For me, I think what you see in these books about how maybe of a fence sitter I am is literally how I kind of write these stories is because I will go from cynic to skeptic to believer, back to skeptic to cynic, back and forth throughout. And I think that's the marvelous thing about these stories. It also creates a kind of fulcrum there so that people can go one side or the other and try to balance it for themselves. What is the level of understanding to be obtained? What is what is false? What might be true? I think that's the joy of the mystery in this particular genre. And you have multiple books. We want to let people know about those as well. We pick Haunted Rails today because it sounds like a lot of fun. And there are more stories on the other side of the upcoming break. But you have written about several aspects of the overarching theme of ghostly activity, the paranormal. And when we do come back from our break, which we're going to take right now, we want to let you tell about these other books for a bit and just indicate how people can get in touch with you. Maybe they have some stories of their own. That would be great. Oh, it'll be a great time. We're enjoying this very much. We love the spooky stuff. Matthew L. Swain is the author. Today we're talking about his book, Haunted Rails, Tales of Ghost Trains, Phantom Conductors, and Other Railroad Spirits. He has written other books, as we've indicated. We'll hear a little bit about those on the other side of a short break. Stay with us. We are Manson Mitchell, and you are tuned in to Seattle's home of Alternative Talk, AM 1150. The preceding audio was via a Skype call. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to mansonmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world-famed, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. What's one of your favorite memories? Hmm, let's see. 
Well, there was this one time I went snorkeling in the Caribbean when I was a kid. It really just blew my mind. I mean, when you're sitting on the beach, it's so peaceful and you sort of forget there's a whole other world under there just full of all kinds of life. We saw the most beautiful corals. I remember thinking they were waving at us as they moved with the ocean. And then there were all these amazing fish. They kind of reminded me of tropical birds. They were so bright and colorful, just darting all over the place like birds in the sky. I'll never forget it. It completely changed the way I look at the ocean. Most of us have a memory of being in nature we'll never forget. Let's protect the world's natural places so more memories can be made for generations to come. Visit worldwildlife.org. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed Matt Shea, who chronicles the haunted history of the PNW. He's on hand Halloween Eve with great ghost stories. On Saturday, we are hosting a virtual Halloween party, so put on your costume and dancing shoes as we play DJs for a day. Bringing you fascinating talk one hour at a time since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk, AM 1150. Get your daily dose of variety. Alternative Talk, 1150. The following audio is via a Skype call. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell. Thank you, Grand Funk Railroad, with Do the Locomotion. You, you got to do it. You got to do it for Matt Swain. We're trying to pick that bumper today. Suzanne goes, oh, what do you want to use? I go, well, you got, you got your peace train. You got your love train. You got the city of New Orleans. You got Do the Locomotion, Grand Funk Railroad. She goes, that's the one. That's what we're using. That's Our great. Our first-time guest on Manson Mitchell is Matthew L. Swain. Swain is S-W-A-Y-N-E. We're talking about his book, Haunted Rails. But, uh, Matt, you have a number of other books and website and, and ways for people to look up what you're all about and connect with you. So please let our listeners know about that. Sure. I, I started with uh, Haunted Universities, America's Haunted Universities, and then I wrote a book called Haunted Rock and Roll, which was pretty popular, uh, and um, I did a sequel to that, which is More Haunted Rock and Roll. I have a book on the ghosts of country music uh, and Haunted World War II, and then just put out Haunted Rails. And if you, you can find these books on Amazon.com, BarnesNoble.com. Um, also, I have a website, MattSwain.com. And usually you can find me uh, on Facebook. Uh, right now, my profile picture is Uncle Fester. So if you see Uncle Fester under my name, you've got the right guy. <laughs> now, which Uncle Fester are we talking about? You got the cartoon there from no. Charles Adams. You got, uh, uh, what was his name? Christopher Lloyd from uh -huh. the movies, but you also have Jackie Coogan from the famous TV show. Jackie Coogan. I am OG Adams family. So ah. he's the original fester for me. Okay. A little, little sidebar there. When Jackie Coogan was buried, a lot of people attended his funeral from the industry and he had, he was much beloved there. So some wise guy who actually loved Jackie Coogan took a light bulb and he put it inside his <laughs> oh, casket. Oh, that's beautiful. I don't know if it remained in the casket for burial, but it was put in there and he and his friends thought that was hilarious because <laughs> if you watch the TV show, you know that he could put a light bulb in his mouth and turn it on. Right. <laughs> 
Excellent. We're having fun talking us some haunted rails stories. And we talked about one president before the break, but there's another president we want to talk about. And I find that story humorous as well as ghostly. And that is the story of President Dwight D. Eisenhower and his experience with the train. And so, Matt, please let our listeners know what that story is about. Sure. And I'll preface this in saying that uh, this uh, ghost story occurs at the National Railroad Museum. And I, I just want to put out the props to all of those workers and volunteers at places like the National Railroad Museum and other railroad museums. They do such a great job in preserving railroad history. I, I don't know whether they know that they also preserve a lot of uh, paranormal railroad history too, because so many of my stories I found at these railroad museums, and this was one of them. And it's a really kind of an interesting story about uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower, actually. And uh, by the way, the National Railroad Museum is in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And uh, on display there, uh, when Dwight D. Eisenhower was in the UK, uh, he traveled through all those different bases and he had such a busy schedule that he used uh, railroad to get from place to place. And he had two cars in particular, the Bayonet and the Bayonet 2. And uh, the Bayonet, I think both of them are on display at the National Railroad Museum. But they're, they're, ever since they had that car on display, there have been numerous stories revolving specifically around that car. And the one story that, that I write about that I, I found pretty interesting was um, there was a volunteer who was working to clean the car, this, this bayonet car, uh, and part of his duties was to vacuum the, the, the carpet uh, on the car. And about halfway through, he uh, decided he was going to take a break and grab something to eat. So he turned off the vacuum cleaner. He left from the car. He joined the other workers, the other volunteers. Uh, he, also, he locked up the car, and then he went to, to, for his break. And when he came back, he found that the vacuum cleaner had been moved it had the the cord had been wrapped up and the eerie part was that the little tread marks that the vacuum cleaner leaves in the carpet were brushed away there was no sign that he had vacuumed any of it it seemed like someone came in and vacuumed for him and then left and so immediately he felt like it was one of the vo other volunteers uh so he went and, and talked to them and, and found that no one uh, no one even knew what he was talking about. And he sensed that because it was locked and because he had the keys, it wasn't some sort of practical joke. So that became one of the stories uh, that has circulated around uh, particularly this this display in the museum. You know, there there were other uh, ghost stories involving um, people could hear doors slamming shut as they go through this empty building. Uh, and then they also talk about just feeling like someone is holding them or grabbing them. Um, and, and some people have even claimed that something has grabbed their hands. Now, we don't know whether Dwight D. Eisenhower is going around trying to hold hands with anybody, but we do know that there are all these different 
stories that kind of crop up around this museum in particular. The, the thing that made me kind of giggle when I was reading that story was that the, the, the tread marks from the vacuum cleaner had been brushed so that you didn't have those heavy tread marks. And you said it was one of the pet peeves of President Eisenhower, which probably most people wouldn't even know, that he didn't like the looks of those tread marks and he had them brushed away after a vacuuming. And I thought that's very funny. Yeah, that's that's right. Years, you know, so when they started talking about this, uh, apparently the worker, one of the worker in particular, knew that uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower was reportedly fastidious and that According to his history, he had actually complained about when they vacuumed that carpet that there were these tread marks. So, yeah, that was kind of the, the other part of that story. I like it that we can talk about the presidents there and ghostly story. It, one of the things it reminds me of is the apparent portability of ghosts, because in the case of Abraham Lincoln, there's the ghost train there. It, I almost want to say it, it's like a loop that plays a bit of history that has such momentous character to it that it gets somehow just like the old VHS tapes. It just keeps replaying there when there's someone around to witness it, the observer effect. I'm not sure what that would be all about, Matt, but I look at... Uh, Ronald Reagan's press conference, I still remember this, he said that their little dog Rex would stand outside right after they moved into the White House, he and Nancy, their dog would stand outside, hair standing on end and barking his little took us off outside the Lincoln bedroom. The mm -hmm. dog would not enter the Lincoln bedroom. So here we have places and the same momentous figure and here and there and ghostly activity. And that's the kind of thing when I, I go back to my childhood days, I would wonder what all that is about. Is, is there such a thing as a portable ghost? Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And I, I want to just bring this up because I think most of the debate that goes on with these stories is, is it true or not? But after, I don't know, six of these books, I, I walk away with what's the meaning of these stories? Because there are, as you say, portable ghosts. Dwight D. Eisenhower appears in this uh, train car in Green Bay. But at Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, his spirit has also been allegedly uh, encountered in the farmhouse that he owned and that has since become a museum. Abraham Lincoln, his ghost, again, appears uh, in stories about the White House. I actually wrote about him in World War II, uh, the, the, um, the ghosts of World War II, when uh, a naked Winston Churchill reportedly encountered the ghost of Abraham Lincoln in the Lincoln bedroom, which is just a great story. And I feel for Abraham Lincoln's spirit at this point, you know, to see, <laughs> see Winston say. naked. But, there we there, go. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so, so, so when we tell these stories, we're really talking about, you know, if someone sees that, a, you know, a vacuum cleaner has been, uh, tidied up and put away 
we immediately think about Dwight D. Eisenhower. We make that connection. We make that connection with places and things. And I think that's really what these stories are are talking about is our connection to history, our connection to the people who were before us. I think that to me is really the interesting part. The other thing is, and I'll put my paranormal kind of hat on here, I think the paranormal spe- uh, researchers would talk a little bit about uh, the ghost train would probably be a residual spirit. And there are several of these ghost trains uh, in the book. And, um, you know, so so it's just some it's an event that gets embedded into the fabric of reality. And like you say, it's almost like a groove of a record. Every time that record goes around, the spirit appears in the case of the Dwight D Eisenhower ghost, you would consider that maybe an active spirit that uh, this spirit is actually interacting with people or interacting with objects. So there, there are a lot of things that go on when you're writing these stories that uh, I try to point out as well. There are so many great stories in Haunted Rails. It was very difficult for Gary and I to to just pick out a few to talk about. But one of them that I mentioned before the break, when you have multiple possibilities for what's going on, is the story on page 77 was a weird specter seen at a train yard sent to warn workers and residents. And this is from Austin, Pennsylvania. And it covers several time periods as well, starting in 1910, but also coming right up into the 1960s or 70s with several different possibilities. So I wanted you to talk a little bit about what was that weird specter and what was that about? Yeah, this that is... That, by the way, that's my favorite story in the book because it is so multidimensional. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. and really, I got the story from a paper, I think, a 1936 uh, old newspaper account of this town uh, in, I guess it would be north central Pennsylvania, Austin, Pennsylvania. And the story was that there was this train yard and people began to uh, workers on this train yard, you know, they wanted to make sure it was a dangerous place wanted to keep strangers out of them as they're moving around these massive cars throughout the yard. Uh, And at one point, some of these workers spotted this very strange looking man. And the way they described how he moved was, was pretty interesting. It wasn't that he was walking or running. It was that he would slink around the cars uh, and always dressed in black or almost looked like a shadow in some of the encounters but uh the the over the next couple weeks there were uh encounters with this strange guy and sometimes the workers would chase him and he had this preternatural way of jumping in and out of box cars and through through the trains and under the under the cars and throughout and they could never get their hands on him and so that story kind of faded away, but almost as soon as the story stopped, there was this horrific flood that, that hit Austin. And there was a dam above the town, and it wasn't very well constructed. And, and Austin was a, was a lumber uh, 
community. They would uh, chop down trees and then take them to the sawmill and then use the railroad to dis, uh, distribute the, the lumber throughout the, the rest of the state and nation. And the basically this dam during a, a pretty bad downpour collapsed and flooded. Uh, and it went through the town and uh, killed, uh, I think, dozens of people, I think, is, is the way it was recorded. Uh, so when I read that, I, I kind of got to that point, and there were there was a, f- a few of the citizens in, in Austin who speculated that this, this bizarre figure wasn't a ghost, but was rather trying to warn them about the oncoming flood. And there is precedent with this. And I started to think, you know, a, a little bit about uh, some of the modern mythology that we've, we have encountered. For instance, the Mothman, which is this spirit that um, people have seen this, you know, flying wing creature. Uh, I think it's in West Virginia. And when this spirit appeared, he appeared over a few months and then suddenly disappeared. And th- there was a horrific bridge collapse that killed a lot of people who were traveling on this bridge uh, to to um, Christmas shop. And the other thing I started to think about is Mothman, which is really recent, probably, I would say, early 2000s, this kind of legendary uh, creature, black sort of human shaped but also the way he moves he's really elongated which is how they describe this whatever this spirit was in uh, Austin and the way he moved was similar to the description so I tried to tie all of those things together for this story and and again to your point it's hard to tease out what exactly is the meaning of the story is it a ghost story is it some type of uh, warning to the citizens, or is it one of these other kind of what I think people would might refer to as a tulpa, a mind created creature? And I, I think that's all embedded in that really kind of cool story. Gary and I went to Point Pleasant, West Virginia, when we were making a, a road trip up north several years ago and decided to get off on a side road because we wanted to see the area that the Mothman had been in. And we had talked with uh, Frank Ficino. Right. And what was, what was his role? Was he a witness? Uh, no, he wasn't a witness. He uh, He's very aware of West Virginia and the paranormal history there. His particular specialty, and I don't know if a railway one boy, you get a lot of R's together trying <laughs> yeah. to get alliterative with this. Rut row, that's what it is. Is there a rut row around railway near Braxton County? Because there was the Braxton County monster, and that was a UFO tale. There oh, with uh, that's right, and it was um, close by the highway. I don't know if there's any railway connection there, but Frank Fischino, like yourself, he's somebody who wants to get the story, and he persists at it. I think if you're going to be authentic, and here's where I'm just, you know, upholding standards of the industry, here I go. I believe in solid paranormal research as a dynamic form of communication of American folk tales, yes, but in a way, it's about journalism because these are things that can be chronicled, they can be scrutinized, they can be vetted. 
I really enjoy that a lot. And when someone like yourself takes up these studies and you are a multi-published author, Matthew, it seems to me that you're sort of carrying the torch for those who, like yourself, want to be authentic in their research. If you go on TV, and I've said this many times, our listeners are groaning there, but you watch some stuff on cable, baloney, and then you find out that there's no evidence to support this, and somebody on the inside lets it out that, you know, well, if nothing's showing up some night, we throw a chair in the middle of the room and then react to this supposed poltergeist activity. That is dirty pool, ladies and gentlemen. I would hate for paranormal research to sink to a lowest common denominator of cheap theatrics. Right, just for entertainment. The thing yeah. about this story... Well, I want to know what Matt has to say about that. Matt, are you in favor of cheap theatrics? Yeah, right. Well, personally, I'm I'm all in favor of cheap theatrics. But I will, <laughs> there you go. I, I will tell you that when I started collecting these stories, and it started out, I was a newspaper reporter. I was working on a uh, collection of ghost stories for my Halloween feature story, which I always tried to do a good job on and I had some local stories but I went to Penn State and grabbed some stories there and really created this feature story you know 800 a thousand words got it out there I never had a reaction to a story quite like that one they loved it and they would tell me their ghost stories uh, even though between you and me I'm pretty easily freaked out I don't really want to talk too much about it, but they would come out to me. And to be honest with you, I can see to me after that, that experience. And as I wrote more and more of these, you have to respect that person's encounter. You have to respect their experience. They encountered something they didn't understand. Some of these stories that they told me are far creepier than anything I've put in a book. Uh, but in some cases, they've changed their lives. This is a spiritual encounter in a lot of cases. This is a case of transcendence where I think earlier in this show you talked about how you all of a sudden could see something might be beyond. And that's a big, huge question that every human being, skeptic, cynic, believer, grapples with. And when I write these, I try to honor both the history and I try to honor the people who do have encounters, try to honor the people who really believe in this and are researching this. And, and, you know, I think that's why I try to stay above the fray of, you know, kind of the cheap thrill paranormal. I'm very glad that you do as are your readers. I'm quite sure we want to get the good stuff, but for me, the value of paranormal research, whether it's between the covers of a book, on TV, in a movie. For me, it's about the attempt to authentically investigate things that speak metaphysically, philosophically, really, to issues that are ultimately imponderable while we have these brains and these bodies and we're in this uh, in earth school, as we like to call it. That's fine, but we are always free to speculate despite the fact that we probably will never get a definitive answer on this side of the veil. There's something in us that wants to know, and that's what you address, and you do it very well. I appreciate that, and I totally agree with you. 
I do. We have a couple of minutes left. Uh, Matt, you know, it's wonderful. Let me say it again. This is his latest book. Great offering. Haunted Rails, Tales of Ghost Trains, Phantom Conductors, and Other Railroad Spirits. A lot of, a lot of us have wanted to ride the rails. I've taken cross-country train trips twice with my family back in the late 60s, early 70s. Never forget them. Wonderful experiences. Didn't see any ghosts, but there was a sense of riding through time, riding through history. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget it. That was when we were uh, taking Santa Fe all the way. You have written a number of other books, and we are going to have you back, Matthew Swain, because you, you tell your stories well, and you have that eye for detail and authenticity, as we've been discussing in the past few minutes. When you look, for example, at a sacred time, it's a hallowed time to think of World War II. My dad fought in it. He was in the Navy. And we look at ghosts of World War II and hauntings. If you would, just tease it a little bit, the sorts of things that you were able to put together with such a heavy topic, World War II. It's vast, and yet you took this angle of finding haunted history. I'd like to know a little bit about that. Yeah, so that uh, it, it's interesting because that, story, that actually started out as a ghost of Civil War because I'm a Civil War buff. Uh, but I felt like everyone had done such a great job and covered it. I just decided I'm also interested in World War II. I'd like to you know, look into that. So what I found was that I found ghost stories not just uh, in those areas of war, but I found them in the United States. I found them in Europe. I found them in Japan. I found them uh, in some of these islands off of Japan, Okinawa, Iwo Jima, some very – was a little different of an experience for me because there are some, for the most part, the haunted rock and roll and, and the other uh, ghost stories, there's a lighthearted aspect of it. This is not lighthearted at all. This, this is pure tragedy and tragedy on a scale that's almost unimaginable. And, um, these stories are told uh, a little bit differently than I think my approach to some of the other stories. These are really kind of, um, Stories that uh, are so evocative that you want to, you want to, uh, you kind of connect with them on a much more serious level. But some of the things that I looked into were um, ghosts of battlefields, uh, some of the the battleships that are now museums um, yes. in the United States yeah. are haunted. Uh, aircraft carriers are haunted, the Intrepid and, and carriers like that. I probably scratched the surface of those. Uh, some other really neat kind of weird things um in england there are just like we talked about these these uh, haunted tra these trains that are ghost trains uh there there are ghost planes that people have seen these world war ii planes flying overhead when they're that's they're, the kind of thing that's yeah the kind of thing we're talking about we're out of time matt we okay. can do this all day but yep. we're gonna have you on again around veterans day and that's the book we'll discuss it's been a real pleasure having you with us thanks matthew l swain your book, Haunted Rails. Lots of success to you. We'll do it again. Thank you. Stay tuned for Jupiter Rising. Thanks so much for listening, ladies and gentlemen. We'll be back next week, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Friday for another edition of Manson Mitchell. Have a great weekend, everyone, and stay safe out there. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.